The second prophecy reading for this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. Hear these words. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. So make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you. You who works for those who wait for God, you meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways, but you were angry and we sinned, because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our God. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. These words are breathed into us by the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the people. His text this morning is in the imperative. Deb's reading was beautiful, but that first line, Isaiah is basically shaking his fist at heaven and saying, tear open the skies, tear open heaven. Come down now. He's that angry. He's, he's saying on behalf of the people, have you looked at the world today, Lord? Have you seen the mess? Where, have you watched the news, for goodness sakes? God, come down now. We need you. Tear open the skies if, if, if necessary. Do whatever it takes. In fact, the phrase there in Hebrew for tear open the heavens or tear open the skies is one that was used often in, in antiquity for the ancient divine warrior to come armed, ready to do whatever is necessary to take care of the people. Rip the sky apart. Do something. It feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? When our lives are upside down, when the world itself seems to be functioning and, and behaving in a way that makes no sense, that continues to take from the poor to care for the rich. Some days it feels like we just want to shout at the sky, God, where are you? Do you even know us? Do you care? But I hope you noticed in the reading that the tone changed. In verse 5, there was, a, there was a quiet word suddenly, still on behalf of the people, essentially saying, Lord, you know that we've failed. You know that we've made mistakes. Yes, we've committed iniquities, an old-fashioned word that at its heart means sin. 
It's a confession of their mistakes and their failures. And, and, and although, if you, again, if you followed the text, you may have noted, they said, now, you were absent from us, and that's why we behaved the way we did. It's sort of like a teenager getting caught and saying, well, if you were home more often, I wouldn't have done that bad thing. It's your fault, not mine. But even still, it's a confession, acknowledging their own failures, admitting out loud, yes, yes, Lord, yes. We've messed up. We need you again. We need you now. Now, I, I, I know this doesn't feel very Christmassy. The, the, the Advent wreath is, is lit. The, the sanctuary is, is, is emerging and becoming this beautiful place with all the Christmas greenery and all. So it doesn't feel like a very Christmassy kind of, kind of text. Even in a church like ours where we, we practice the season of, the liturgical season of Advent, where we prepare for the celebration of the coming of the Christ by listening to these old words Still, it feels so out of sorts, doesn't it? When we're trying to celebrate Christmas and get ready for it. Here's this word about sin and iniquity and confession and sorrow and fear and worry and and all the rest. But in a sense, it does fit. It's a call for God to come. After all, that is what happens with Jesus arriving in the manger. Sure, he's a sweet and precious and wonderful little child. But we know what he will teach. We know what he will preach and proclaim. So yes, it, it is indeed a tough word to hear. And, I, and so you might be saying, come on, Glenn, it, it's Christmas. Sin and anger and sorrow and frustration and worry. And it's Christmas. Let's, not, let's put that aside. But if you pay attention to the carols we sing and the words of Scripture that come up this time of year, it's precisely because it's Christmas that we're paying attention to these difficult topics. The, the, the theme for this sermon series, Let Every Heart Prepare, Do you recognize the carol that comes from? That's joy to the world. Let every heart prepare. You see, if we're going to take this this event seriously, if we really want a Messiah, a Savior, to come and and lead us to new life, then we're going to be called upon to do a personal inventory, to look at our lives, to, to look in the mirror if necessary and ask, where have I fallen down? Where is my life in need of new life? The songs that we sing at Christmas, they do just that. They're surprisingly thought-provoking and sometimes even poignant. Our bell choir at the beginning of the service played the the beautiful carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Do you remember the words? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom, Captive, Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Isaiah could have written those words. Ransom us, rescue us, restore us. Please, Lord, we're in mourning. We're lonely. Our ancient prophet would recognize the words from that carol, Joy to the World, too. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. It's right there in the middle of our our hymn, our carol, Joy to the World. You see, if we pay attention to the story of the Christ child's arrival, if we pay attention to his life and his teachings and all that he will deliver in in his preaching and his work with the people, we'll find that he's demanding we pay attention, not to him, but to our lives, that we look inside to ask, who am I really? Maybe that's why Fred Craddock, the great preacher, once said, many people are obsessed with the the second coming because deep down they're really disappointed in the first one. 
You know, if you pay attention to this first one, it really does actually challenge us. The second one's got all this stuff about leaving the bad people behind, the good people being taken away and all that, which, by the way, isn't in the Bible. But sometimes people get focused on that. And they forget about Jesus, the fact that Jesus has already been here, has already come once before, and we still aren't quite following his teachings or following in the footsteps of his life. The first time Jesus comes, he demands that we honestly look to see in our lives where love has been pushed aside by greed and pride and prejudice, where grace and forgiveness are no longer a part of who we are. That's the hard work of faith. It's what Isaiah wants us to do on this morning. If we're honest in our lives, we'll definitely see that there's a need for forgiveness, for a new day, for redemption, for beginning again, for acknowledgement of, of yes, sin and sorrow, for allowing our hearts, our minds, our souls, if necessary, even our bodies to be turned around. Surprisingly, our culture has picked up on this. If, if you go to see A Christmas Carol this season, uh, you know, the Charles Dickens classic, if you see it on, on stage, pay attention to all the biblical allusions and, and references that are there. Oh, you won't hear a sermon, and they won't go through and, and say, now remember the Isaiah prophecy that says, they won't do that. But if you listen carefully, you hear that, that Dickens has woven all these biblical ideas all throughout the, the, his story. Now, the twin themes of redemption and forgiveness are, are there as a guide for how we're to live. But redemption and forgiveness are not easily accomplished in this life. If you remember the story, Scrooge is desperate for a life that matters, but he's been so consumed by greed, so consumed by prejudice, so consumed by, by his own personal desires, he can no longer pay attention to anyone else's. He's got to face his worst and weakest self. And so if you remember the story, this deeply angry, cynical, frustrated man is held up to a mirror so he can see who he has become. It's awful, it's terrible, it's horrible, it's frightening. But at the end of the story, he's forgiven and redeemed. What does redeemed mean? What does redemption it mean? It means to, to be reclaimed, to be renewed, to be turned around. Emmanuel Cleaver is one of my favorite preachers. is an African-American pastor in a big church out in the Midwest. Emmanuel Cleaver says, God permits U-turns. God allows us to turn around, to begin again, to restore the fortunes of grace at the heart of the, of the Dickens story, at the heart of the Bible, is a tale of grace and forgiveness being given to all and all being invited to live in an encompassing universal love. And, and I, wanna, I wanna highlight that phrase for a moment, universal love. In fact, just a, just a quick aside, if I may. Universal love means love for all, and all means all, as you know. And this message has been a part of our faith for 3,000 years. It's not something some progressive theologian came up with, uh, like me in the last couple of years. Something, no, no, no. It's been there since the beginning, of the earliest beginnings of our faith. Isaiah, Hosea, Jeremiah, and Jesus all proclaim that God's love is given not just to a few, but to the world. They dreamed then of a community of faith that would take that love seriously, that would say, this is our call. This is who we are invited to be and to become to embrace it finally, grab hold of it, and live it. You know, there's a lot of worry about the future of the church. The church universal, but especially churches like us. Churches like our congregation. But I, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm not too worried about it. Not when we let the message of love be real. When we let it take hold of our church, especially in the way it has taken root here at First Community. 
The church is going to change. There's gonna be massive changes in the church around the world, maybe especially so in the United States of America, maybe even more so in Columbus. I don't know, but I'm not worried. Because as long as love stays at the heart and center of who we are and whose we are, it will give us the courage we need to deal with anything and everything that comes along. Well, back to the sermon. When forgiveness is real, when redemption has taken hold, the natural outpouring is, is one that leads towards restoration, justice, especially for the poor. This action is central to the work of Dickens. It's central in the act of Isaiah and Jeremiah and eventually in the teachings and the life of, of Jesus Christ. Well, as I said earlier, Isaiah is writing about his own people, of course. They've finally returned to the land of Israel. They've been in captivity. They've come back to the promised land again. And yet things are different. What they thought was going to be is no longer the same. It's a way that nostalgia can actually harm a community. You see, they dreamed of, oh, remember how it used to be back in the good old days? And they finally get back there. And it's not quite what they thought it was going to be. Nostalgia can, can harm a community. Nostalgia can almost kill a church even. I remember reading an interview in the paper not too long ago about a, about a group of leaders in, in Georgia who gathered together to talk about what needed to happen in the church and what needed to happen in the United States of America. And there were, there were both uh, liberal and conservative folks, male and female from different churches, different, different congregations, having this conversation about what needed to happen. And this one woman said, you know what we need to do? We need to get back to the values of the 1950s. That's what our country needs, is to get back to the 1950s. And another woman on the same panel said, I don't think you're serious. Do we want to go back to a time when African Americans could only drink from water fountains labeled coloreds only? Do we want to go back to a time like that? In fact, if we go back to that time, you and I won't be invited to participate in a panel like this because we're women. Women had minority status almost, secondary voices. Nostalgia, nostalgia can kill us if we got up too caught up in it. Yet the people of Israel... They know they've stumbled. Despite the fact that things are so different, they know they've contributed to some of the problems. As much as they want to blame God or the economy or the government or anything else, they know deep down in their own hearts that they're the ones who've fallen short. They're the ones who've been overwhelmed with sorrow over their failures. So perhaps what we need in our church, in our homes, families, maybe even in your life, is the courage, along with the people of Isaiah's time, to ask, where do I need to turn around? Where do we need to begin again? Where and from whom do I need to ask for forgiveness? When we can do that, when we find the courage to actually ask those questions, we'll discover what we need to do and see with remarkable clarity where these same issues are at work in the world. So what about it? What about you? Are you willing, with a childlike love almost, a peaceful sense of fairness, and a generous portion of forgiveness, to begin again, to turn around, to make that U-turn and go a new direction? I've seen this happen. I've been in professional ministry for uh, over 30 years now. My very first job, paid job in a, in a church came when I was 20 years old, 
Julie and I had just gotten married a couple of months before. This little congregation in Eugene, Oregon offered me $30 a week to teach Sunday school on Sunday mornings to the youth group and lead the youth group sessions at night. $30 a week. Trust me when I say this, I was overpaid. But we loved, we loved that little church, and we loved that youth group. Those kids were fairly, from fairly affluent families, but just like any kid from any family, regardless of whether they're poor or rich or somewhere in between, they wanted to have a sense of belonging. They wanted to feel like they were part of something that mattered. They wanted somebody to know that they needed love. And for many of those kids, that youth group, that youth ministry became a place where they were accepted and, and welcomed no matter what had been going on in their lives. And they, uh, we just, we really fell in love with each other. There was one kid there who I remember specifically. Her name was Melody. She was a junior higher, we called him back then, a middle schooler today. She was 14 years old, sweet as could be. She was the one kid when I'd say, would somebody like to read scripture? Her hand was always up. Would someone like to offer the prayer? Her hand would always go up right away. She was a kid who just loved everything about church. She was the embodiment of what it meant to be a kind and, and welcoming Christian. Sweet kid. Well, after about a year or so there, we had a youth program one Sunday night, and uh, Julie hadn't come with me. She'd stayed home, but I was leading the program, and it just wasn't going well. The kids were kind of messing around. I got angry, lost my temper, said a swear word or two, perhaps, and said, just go home. Just go home. Call your parents. Walk. Do whatever. I, go home. And I went back into my little office and sulked. And the parents arrived. I went out to make sure they were getting in their cars and going on. Melody walked up to me. Sweet little Melody. Her dad in the car waiting. Tears were streaming down her face. She said, I thought you were real. I thought the love and the grace that you've been teaching us was real. I thought this place was home. This is my second home. I can't believe what you've done. I said nothing because I was still furious. I was still fuming inside. I just stared at her as she got in her car and went on home. I locked up the church got in my car, drove to the little apartment that Julie and I were living in then, told her what had happened, and she said, Glenn. There was a period after that. You need to call every kid in your group and apologize. I started to argue, and she said, Glenn, call. She was right. I called. The first one I called was Melody. Her dad answered the phone. He's a football coach at Churchill High School. He was known for being a good coach, a tough coach, but a fair guy. I said, hi, coach. It's Glenn. I need to talk to Melody. He said, it's a good thing you called because I was about to get in my car and drive over to your place. <laughs> I said, yes, sir, I understand. I said, Melody, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. Would you please accept my apology? And she said these words, I'll never forget this sweet kid. Glenn, I love you and Julie so much. It really hurt. It really hurt when you yelled at us. But I forgive you. I forgive you. To this day, it's the single most important lesson I've ever learned in my life to see grace at work, to see love made real, to see forgiveness offered, given, and received. Forgiveness, redemption, restoration, justice, peace. Those, those words aren't just abstract ideas that are taught in seminary classes. They're the kinds of words that describe the life that God wants us to have with each other. They're real life virtues of what it means to be alive and, and, and in relationship with each other. 
But so often we, we hide the pain, don't we? we? We push aside the frustration, the fear, the worry, the sin, whatever it might be, and we, we cover it up. And then all of a sudden, it just seems to bubble out. Have, have you noticed that? If you just don't deal with something going on in your life, it bubbles out somewhere else. You're upset over here, and the next thing you know, you're yelling at somebody here. In, in my family, we call that kick the cat syndrome. Do you know about kick the cat syndrome? It's when you've had a really bad day at work or at school. Things have not gone well. You've been yelled at. You're kind of frustrated and angry. You walk in. You open the door. The cat, who just happens to be walking casually by, doesn't realize what's going on, but you're angry that the cat's in the way, and so you kick the cat, and the cat's flying by in the air going, what, what did I do? I, I don't understand. And just so you know, I've never actually done that, just be, just so clear. <laughs> it's kind of a metaphor. It's kind of a preacher's hyperbole, as you know. But you, you get the idea, don't you? We, sometimes we kick each other verbally, sometimes angrily, when the other isn't really the one who's caused the problem. It's something going on deep within us. Uh, Richard Rohr gives a more theologically appropriate way to describe this. He says, if we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll transfer it. It's kicking the cat. If we don't learn to transform the pain, we'll transfer it. We'll yell at the kids, irritate our spouse, pout and sulk, and you get the point. Today's text, what Isaiah wants us to do is to pay attention, to name the pain, the sin, the sorrow, the worry, the fear, the anxiety, so that it can be transformed and so doing our lives changed and renewed. That's why I love this word from Isaiah so much. It's such a beautiful text, spoken from the place of pain. Listen to verse 8. Yet, O Lord, we are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand, all of us. One of the most beautiful words in Scripture was that first word in verse 8. Yet, for seven verses, he recounts all the problems they're going through and all the things and the and issues and all the rest. And it's like he takes this breath and says, Yet, Lord, you're the potter. You're the artist. You're the one who can take the messy pile of our lives and reshape it, reform it, transform it into something beautiful and amazing. You are the one. You are the parent who loves us eternally and invites us to experience the everlasting joy of love right now. Can you hear? Can you hear the beauty of that promise? Yet... Yet, what's happening right now, maybe even in your, in your very lives, is this. God is ready to tear open the skies. God is ready to rip open heaven itself, to come to you. Yes, even you. To begin again. The promise is true. The promise has been given. Let every heart prepare.